thank you. Uh, it's great to be with you. Again, my name is Luke, and uh, happy Father's Day uh, to all you fathers out there. And um, uh, I'm a father myself. I think we have a picture of my family. There's my wife, Stephanie, our two boys. The oldest there is Noah and uh, Hudson there sitting in my wife's lap. Uh, just turned two on Friday. And uh, they get their good looks uh, and their intelligence from their mother. So uh, uh, no doubt about that. But, um, you know, we're going to continue on in our series today on asking the question, why? Um, you know, great questions shape our lives. And it's out of God's wisdom that uh, we find the answers. And so we'll be journeying through a small but very packed portion of Scripture today. And uh, if you're new with us, Welcome, so am I. Uh, if you're uh, skeptical about this thing called Christianity, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we'll be checking out, um, you know, what it means to, to have hope. That's the question that we're going to be asking. Um, you know, we, we see hope all throughout Scripture, but what does that often mean? Um, and so today, let's take a look at what some people say about hope. Uh, a couple quotes here. Bill Hybels has said that the church is the hope of the world. Uh, Randy uh, Alcorn says, the gospel infuses hope and joy into our current circumstances by acknowledging God's greatness over any crisis we face. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said, without Christ, there is no hope. Nelson Mandela said this, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. And it's been said that you can go a few weeks without food, maybe some of us a little bit longer. Uh, you can go a few days without water. You can go minutes without air, but you cannot go seconds without hope. And so I want you to imagine for a second that you have two men. You ask them to do a job, um, putting a widget on a spinner, spinner on a widget, fidget, widget, whatever those things are. It's a mundane job. You ask them to do it for 10 hours a day, over and over and over. Same type of men, uh, same socioeconomical status, same age, same temperament, basically identical in every possible way. You put them in the same type of room, same lighting, same temperature, same conditions. Um, it's a tedious job, mundane, boring. No windows in the room, you kind of get the picture. The only difference is you tell the first man, after a year of doing this, I'm going to pay you $10,000. You tell the second man, after a year of doing this job, I'm going to pay you $10 million. So a few weeks go by. They get a 30-minute lunch break. They're sitting down. They're eating lunch together. The first guy goes, man, I am just bored out of my mind. This is killing me. I'm thinking about quitting. What about you? Second guy goes, no. <laughs> Actually, I kind of enjoy it. Uh, I whistle while I work. What's going on here? Well, they're both viewing the same set of circumstances, but through different lenses. Their expected future hope determines their present response. So keep that in mind as we move through because what we think about the future does impact the way we view our present. We are utterly, unavoidably, irreducibly hope-based creatures. That's just who we are. That's part of our being. And what you think about your future completely determines how you're experiencing your present. 
So as we unpack the, the, today the question of why, we're going to define hope, discuss where true hope comes from, and finish up by answering the question, why is hope necessary and how does it impact my daily life? So first let's define hope because often we view hope in, in kind of the wrong way. Um, our English word for hope, it, it's too weak. It, it doesn't fully signify what the biblical word means. We need to define it properly because what we often think of is not biblical hope. My kids, they hope for ice cream after every meal. I mean, every meal they're asking for ice cream, which when their grandparents are in town actually happens. And so maybe they have a good reason to hope. Um, you know, we hope that we're going to lose weight or have more money in the bank without exercising or having a savings plan. Uh, we hope the Yankees are going to turn it around and win the World Series. Well, at least maybe Pastor Michael. We hope that, uh, you know, the HRBT isn't going to be backed up to Granbury Street. You know, we, we hope that these things, and so all of us hope for things is the point. Biblical hope, though, isn't the same thing as optimism or wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident expectation. Ordinarily, when we express hope, we're expressing uncertainty. Uh, this is not the distinctive meaning of biblical hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident it will happen. Hope is a firm assurance regarding things that are unknown. So how do we get that type of hope? It sounds good, doesn't it? To have a firm confidence that something's going to happen, not just wishful thinking. Where does that come from? And so let's look at scripture today. Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So where does, come, where does hope come from? First, it's acknowledging that the source of our hope is God. Notice it calls God the God of hope. In other passages, it refers to God as the God of all comfort and the God of all peace. So God is our source, God, the God of hope, the hope of God. God is our source, but he is also the object of our hope. To be without God is to be hopeless. Our hope from God and in God should produce joy. And both joy and peace are dependent upon belief from that passage. The Apostle Paul was the author of this little passage. And what he's affirming is that hope comes from God. It is a gift from God, but it's also a promise from God to all who believe. And so that hope, that promise from God cannot be broken. Kind of gives me hope just saying that. That comfort, that assurance of something that can't be broken, that's something that's firm, and it's based off of the character of God, of who he is, not who we are. What comes from God is sure. If God is the giver of this hope, all who believe can rest their hope on this foundation. God has given us assurance, confident expectation of this hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so my question 
for you is what are you believing that's giving you joy and peace? Where are you finding your joys? Where are you finding your peace? You know, all of us look and turn to something. What are you turning to to find comfort, to find peace, to find hope? So how did God become our hope? Why is, is God, why should he be our hope? Well, God became our hope because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3, uh, 3 th- uh, through 4, it says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So why does that matter? Well, because we are separated from God because of sin. And ethics and morality isn't enough to just sort of deal with that separation. So let's just kind of take a side for a second and talk about the resurrection. Because the Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage in other places, says, if the resurrection didn't occur, if Jesus Christ really didn't die and he wasn't uh, buried and he didn't raise again, then we have no hope. But if he did, then we have a marvelous hope. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, this gospel, this good news is what, is what the gospel means. The message of Jesus Christ, at the core of the message of the gospel, is not the ethical teaching of Jesus. You know, and Jesus had wonderful ethical teaching. If you're, if you're not a, a believer with us today, uh, you've probably seen some of it because it's, it's filled our culture. You know, turn the other cheek. Uh, forgive your enemies, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, and on and on. Great moral, ethical teaching. Um, but is that the message of the gospel? Is just do good things to others? Is that the core of what Jesus was about, living a good life? Love, forgive, peace? Is that what it means? No. It's, it's a historical fact that Jesus Christ changed so many lives that It impacted the masses that within 200 years, you have this culture, this Greco-Roman culture, strongly pagan culture, that it completely supplanted that culture within 200 years. It's it's astounding what occurred. And it wasn't the intelligence class. It wasn't the intellectuals of the day. It was the masses. It was the downtrodden. It was the, the lower rings on the socioeconomical status that really found and and grabbed a hold of Christianity and still is happening today in places like Latin America and Africa. We're seeing great groups of people, masses coming to Christianity. What is it about that? Is it the the moral ethical teaching? Is that what the masses, the downtrodden, or is that what they're wrapping their arms around to give them hope? That after my, my years of darkness, after, you know, uh, living this life, I now have this message of turn the other cheek? Is that what they're looking for? Is that something that's going to heal their heart? The ethics, the morality? No, that's not what they're looking for. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. They're not being filled with joy and peace through morality. The message of Christianity, the message of hope, is that Christ died and rose. That's the message of Christianity. That when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, 
he took away that barrier, that barrier between us and God, and he destroyed sin and death. That's the reason the downtrodden of the world can say, I have a hope because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, that he has defeated death. Now I have no more fear. That whatever success I've had in this life of of managing, of struggling, I have hope because of what Christ has done for us. Because my future is certain because of the resurrection is a fact. And if the resurrection isn't a fact, then there is no hope. It's just ethical principles. But because the resurrection is a fact, that changes lives. Because it did happen, Christ has opened the cleft. He has punched a a hole in the brick wall, the concrete slab that separates us. And now the power of God, that resurrection power that raised him from the dead can now enter into our lives, can now empower us. Listen, we we live in a religious environment. You know, we're in the South and that can hurt you, not help you when it comes to finding the gospel. Um, we, uh, me and my family, we were driving down to, uh, to Florida to visit some family from uh, North Carolina, and we're going down through South Carolina with two young kids after about three hours in a, in a car. You see a McDonald's with a play uh, place, that's like an oasis. <laughs> we pull over, um, let the kids loose, and I'm uh, going to get coffee, and right above the drink stand, at uh, the McDonald's on exit 102 across from the street from the Flying J in uh, Blacksburg, South Carolina, there's a tablet of the Ten Commandments above the little drink station. Only in the South. I I, I mean, come on. What is this? You know, we grow up with these religious symbols. We know people. We see it. It's part of our culture. It's part of our language. And we can become immune. You know, we can, we can get enough Jesus just to be good. You know, and sometimes we, we go, well, if I do good things, if I, if I kind of help a little here, do a little here, then I'm good. You know, if I help, then Jesus will help me. Kind of a give and take. And that's, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. But that's, that's not the gospel. That's not what it means. We need to be reminded of where our hope truly comes from. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done in the resurrection. The gospel is the antidote to religion. The resurrection is a fact. And now the the downtrodden say, I have hope. I've got something. I've got a future hope for myself. Not here's a bunch of nice, wonderful ethical principles. You know, middle class folks sometimes get excited about, you know, ethical teaching and and ideas and, you know, they can kind of, you know, get around good principles, but but not the downtrodden, not the masses, not the people that are are stuck. You know, what is it that's going to raise them up, is going to give them hope, give them hope through the darkness of this world? It's the resurrection. That's what changes life. That's what will change your life. And that's what will change the world. Now, I just want to argue for a moment because I know there might be some people saying, well, how do you know it's a fact? You're saying some nice stuff. 
uh, seem like a nice enough guy? How, how can you say with such certainty that it's a fact? Well, one, I'm talking to you about something that Christianity offers that is so powerful and so amazing and wonderful that you should want it to be true. And that there is great, great evidence that it is true. Richard Dawkins is a pretty well-known atheist, author, well-known speaker. And he says, you should never believe anything you can't prove. Um, He doesn't like faith. Don't believe anything you can't prove. Now, he does admit at one point that what what has happened in history you can't prove in, the, prove in the same way as you would like in a laboratory, in the scientific method. Um, but it would be foolish to say that we can't know things with certainty that are, or, that are historical facts. Um, I mean, we go to class and you take history class and they teach you all these things that are facts and that are truth and we learn from history. Now, I, I believe if you use that same criteria of proving what a historical fact is, and you base that on what Christianity claims, you'll see the truths. You'll see that they line up accordingly. I'll give you an, here's a little illustration too, just to think through it. If you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe in it, how else would you explain the birth of Christianity? That it grew over 200 years to completely take over a culture. And you might say, well, you know, that's not an explanation for, for the resurrection. Well, give me a, a historically viable alternative explanation. I mean, how does that occur? Because it didn't occur by them conquering the, the countries or the nations and saying, you know, now do this. It occurred through the masses spreading at first. And we also know that through the letters of Paul, they were written just a decade and a half after the the death of Jesus, that thousands, thousands of Jews believed that Jesus was God based on the fact of the resurrection. And they began worshiping him as God as well. And you have to remember, put things in context here, in Eastern culture, where you have God is kind of everything and everywhere, the idea of a man being a God isn't that foreign, you know? Okay, we'll just add you to our pantheon of other, you know, religious symbols and idols and and beliefs, and they just kind of bring you in. But not the Jews. You have to remember that they were time and time again in captivity, in Egypt, and in Babylon, and they never adopted the foreign pagan gods of that culture. They always stayed true to the idea of who their God was. Because their God, their idea of God, was that he was universal, that he was everywhere, that he was self-sufficient. And the idea of a human being becoming or being God, would, they were the last people on earth, basically, to believe that a man would be God. And Orthodox Jews to this day won't even write the name of God. I mean, that, that's how like sacred and holy and, and, and conservative they are. And you, you have to think too, worldviews change, but not overnight, right? I mean, worldviews, it takes time. Culture shifts, not overnight, but over time. Little, you know, discussions and arguments and protests and this, that, the other. It's a cultural shift, not overnight. Hundreds of people 
claimed to have seen Christ, died, buried, and raised from the dead based off of the testimony of masses. You know, I remember this one time I was in college and um, I was uh, in the computer lab finishing up a paper right before class was getting ready to start, uh, getting ready to start, kind of procrastinating at the last minute. So I'm kind of rushing and um, hurrying through this paper and someone kind of passed by me kind of quickly and said, um, hey, did you hear? And I kind of heard what they said briefly and I thought, man, that's, that's kind of unbelievable. And I just sort of dismissed it and I continued on to um, what I was doing. And then someone else said, um, hey, did you hear? And I thought, that's odd. You know, they said something similar, slightly different. And um, continued on, and I'm finishing my paper, printing it out. And someone else said, hey, did you hear? And it was about that third time, that fourth time, that as I'm walking to my classroom, I began to believe um, something that I thought was unbelievable. And I began to ponder this idea of how in the world did planes fly into the World Trade Center in New York City? And I had never seen it myself up until that point. But I began to believe something that I thought was unbelievable based on the testimony of others. So asking the next logical question, you would say, well, how do you know that testimony was credible? Maybe the people that were you know, happened to walk by me on that day in the computer lab were lying. Maybe these individuals in history were lying uh, about the resurrection. Maybe they, they were paid off or it was some conspiracy. Well, we know that in the Gospels, the firsthand accounts were, uh, of, of, of people seeing Jesus raised from the dead were women. And in that very patriarchal society, we know from history that a woman's testimony in both Roman and Jewish courts was unmissable. It was considered unreliable. Now, that's regrettable, but that's a historical fact. So if you're trying to present your case, if you were trying to make a claim and you were just falsifying it, you would never make it the first eyewitnesses to be women, not in that culture. About the only explanation that they were the first witnesses, were they, they were the first witnesses. That's the only reason that it would be written that way. That's the only explanation. And there is a, quite a bit of other evidence regarding the resurrection. And I hope you take the time, if you're skeptical, if you're on the fence, I hope you take the time to do some investigating, to look into it yourself. Because if it did happen, it's not what Jesus said but it's what he did that will really change your life. If Jesus came as a teacher, like all the other founders of world religions, and said, live like this and you will find God, then, he, then Christianity would be no different. Jesus isn't one more founder saying, here's the way to God. Jesus Christ says, I'm God. I've come to find you. Every other religion says, this is the path. Here's the eightfold path. Here are the five pillars. Here's what you must do to save yourself. Jesus Christ says, no, I've come to do what saves you. 
And I'm here to tell you, I've done what it takes. I've lived the life that you should have lived. I've died the death you should have died. I died in your place as your substitute. And when you believe in me, my resurrection power comes and begins to change your life. That's the glorious future that Christianity offers. That when we die, we will be raised again to live with Christ in heaven. I mean, that, that is a hope that we can be grateful for because of what Jesus offers, eternal life. Let me loop back to our passage for today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope produces joy and peace in believers through the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit. Um, have you heard of this new phenomenon called glamping? Glorious camping? I know I just took a turn there. Glorious camping, you know what it is? It's like you show up, there's a luxury tent for you, ready-made fire. They come, they bring you a hot cup of coffee. They, uh, they bring you ready-made s'mores. It's supposed to be, you know, all the rage. It's un-American, okay? Uh, I'm sorry. You know, camping is about not sleeping well, being bit by bugs, but it's also about relationships. It's about being with people. You know, you, you go together. You struggle through putting up the tent together. You know, you... you try to figure out how to make a fire, you know, that, that's part of camping. It's, it's the relationships, it's, it's the people that you're with. Here's the point, okay? Christians aren't the hired hands bringing Jesus a s'more or a cup of coffee. Christians are enjoying the fire alongside with Jesus. It's that relationship, the Holy Spirit inside you, God within you. When you became a believer, when you believed in what Christ did, believed in the resurrection, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're baptized and sealed. It's a relationship. And as we grow closer to God, we also grow closer in the hope of God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Matthew Henry put it like this. The joy and peace of believers arises chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared to what is laid up for them. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. Okay. So why hope? As I promised, we're going to uh, finish the discussion with why hope is necessary and what it means for my daily, uh, my daily life. Why do I care about hope? Why should you? Well, because this world never fills me. It never fulfills me. It never brings that joy and peace that we're all needing and looking for. It leaves me, this world leaves me wanting and empty. And I would have to choose despair. I, I would have to without hope. Because of, you can't turn a blind eye. You can only turn a blind eye for so long, you know, until it catches up with you. Just talking with friends and illness and frustrations and disappointments. 
we weren't meant to be satisfied by this world. Hope is necessary because hope is based on God and God doesn't disappoint. I honestly don't know how anyone survives without hope. There's just too much despair. I think King David in the Psalms, in Psalm 31, he said it so well. He said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he said, hope strengthens us. It gives us courage to live this life. So what does it mean for your daily life? You say, all right, I'm going to leave here in a little bit. What about Monday? Well, it means that you can experience joy and peace no matter the circumstances. It means you don't have to be shaken by this world, by politics, by the stock market, by health, whatever it is. It means there is a strong, firm foundation that proves itself so much more trustworthy than anything else this world can offer. Hope has a name, and that name is Jesus. And I don't know about you, I don't know where you've been or the things you've experienced in life, but I know for myself, there are some times where you just need to cry out and say the name and remember where your hope comes from. There was a, there's a story, and I know this story is familiar uh, to you here, about President Lincoln, that during the Civil War, he, um, he would attend a church and uh, would kind of stay in the study uh, so as not to disrupt the other uh, congregants. And um, he would go with his secret service man, and um, they went this one particular uh, evening, and um, as they're walking back to the White House, the Secret Service agent asked President Lincoln what he thought of the sermon. And he said, oh, well, you know, it was brilliantly conceived, it was biblically relevant, it was well presented. And so the Secret Service agent said, well, um, so it was an excellent message then. And President Lincoln said, no, no, it wasn't. Because he failed. He failed to ask us to do something great. Um, I don't want to make that same failure today. Uh, what, what I want to ask you, what I want you to consider is something great. I'm asking you to put your hope in the only thing that will not disappoint, in the only thing that will not leave you hanging. I'm asking you to put your hope in the true joy and peace of this world. I'm asking you to put your hope in Jesus Christ, the true source of hope. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we thank you that hope has a name, and it is Jesus. We thank you that by believing in him, we can have confidence and reassurance that no matter what happens in this life, you have gone and prepared a place for us. That you are stronger and greater than anything we might face. God, I pray for myself and for everyone here that you would help us to hope in you 
remind us of the power of the resurrection. Remind us of your ability and your greatness to conquer sin and death. We love you, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.